Hear the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your goals, O Israel, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore... Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of this earth? Turn your burning anger and relent from this, this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writings were the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets down out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that was made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not your anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. 
that they were set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they made it, gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came a calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered round him. And he said to him, to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his, his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses turned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves a gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron had made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How long has it been since you have uttered words like this? What was I thinking? Why is this bothering me so much? Why did I respond this way? And why does this control me so much? Perhaps you can look back on a time in your life, or, or maybe it's a time right now, or maybe you can see a pattern in somebody who is close to you, and the words that you would describe the situation might be out of control, troubled, reckless, or maybe even addicted. In other words, it seems as if this person is so driven so deeply and craves something so passionately or is so haunted profoundly that he or she seems to lose their ability to... to think clearly, or to act maturely. You may even find yourself describing this person as, man, he is crazy. And I don't mean like crazy, fun crazy. I mean like dangerous crazy. 
Perhaps it isn't quite to that extreme. Perhaps it's a little bit more subtle or a little bit more nuanced. And while the person you know isn't crazy, dangerous, there is an unusual power struggle in their soul when it comes to certain subjects or to certain people or to certain issues. And if you would somehow kind of drop a little microphone down into their soul, you might hear something like, I just want to be happy. I just want to be successful. I I just want to be loved by them. I just want to be attractive. Sometimes you might have to have enough sense to ask yourself, what is the big deal? But more often than not, there's just this strange, nagging sense of a desire for something that you want, you really want. You see, when it, when it comes to what we want, sometimes there's just a lure. You're kind of be pulled into something. And other times it produces sheer lunacy. The Bible describes this misplaced lure and lunacy as idolatry. And Exodus 32 is one of the best examples of the craziness and the consequences of misplaced desires that ultimately become deadly. And this is the story of the golden calf. And according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this story is given for our instruction that, quote, we might not desire evil as they did. It's given for our instruction. So today, I want us to examine this story and the nature of idolatry and then see what we can learn about our own idolatry, your idolatry, my idolatry. So what happened in this story? I remember when I read this story as a kid and learned about this story, I was just kind of amazed. I remember the flannel graph way back in the day of flannel graphs and the the story of this golden calf and Moses up on the mountain and all this stuff going on and Moses forcing the people to drink ground up gold. It was just kind of memorized, but it's more than just, we've learned that Exodus is more than just a collection of really cool stories regarding the people of Israel. There's a message that is being communicated here about God himself, about sin, about grace, and about atonement. We can see that all here. And this is important to remember because chapter 32 is an abrupt shift that is taking place regarding after the design of the tabernacle, after the design of the clothing of God's priests, after the describing the people who are going to actually construct it. There's a a shift that takes place that is really abrupt. It's like, what just took place? And the shift moves to one of the most significant rebellions in Israel's history. And it's our shift. It's our daily shift that takes place. And the reality is the shift and the extent of the failure historically is shocking. It's jarring. 
And the same is true for us. Verse 1 indicates that Moses had delayed, seemed to delay in coming down from, from the mountain. And if you remember all the way back in chapter 24, Moses ascended Mount Sinai, right? He mount, went up to Mount Sinai with the elders, and, and then he, he went higher on to, to receive for 40 days from the Lord all the instructions. So chapter 25 to, to 31 cover the instructions that he received while he was up on the mountain. And chapter 31 ends with Moses receiving the two tablets of the covenant, the two tablets of the testimony, walking down. And keep in mind, prior to Moses' ascent, the people heard the law of God. They heard it. And what did they, what happened there? Do you remember? They all said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. But it only takes 40 days. 40 days in patience and fear for people to break their covenant. The dramatic and quick turn away from God is part of their story. And it's part of our story. Verse 1 records even the demands of the people. Did you hear how, how forceful it is? Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. We don't know. So you can hear we need you to do something. Get up. Make something. We don't know what happened to Moses. So why did they make this demand? Well, we will look at the problems of, of idols later on, but it is likely that two things are going on. One, impatience. Moses has been gone for 40 days, and his fate is uncertain. They know that he went before a holy and awesome God. They had experienced it. They saw the rumblings. They saw the lightning. God's presence was here. He heard it, and he went up on the mountain. Forty days, and they were quite un unsure. So maybe another thing is fear. They felt vulnerable. They desired some level of security. If Moses is not going to intercede for us, who will intercede? So the absence of Moses and the lack of any word from God put them in a tempting place to take things into their own hands. In other words, their desire for certainty and security tempted them. And the conversation with Aaron was, was likely a confrontation that felt more like a coup, a hostile takeover. But Aaron, you just shake your head at him, don't you? Aaron instructed the people, just bring me your golden rings. And he made a calf. And then they, presumably the, the leaders of the insurrection, said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But then Aaron, very quickly, what does he do? He built an altar and said, tomorrow there shall be a feast to the Lord. There's a few things to note here. One, the choice of the calf was not an accident. It was a common image in their day. They had just come out of Egypt. It is what they had known. 
Secondly, we've we got to note that the people didn't actually think that the physical golden calf was their deliverer. But rather, they used it as an earthly representation of God. In other words, they, they had created an object of worship because God's provision at that very time was not enough. They needed something to fill the gap. He's not here right now. We don't have his presence with us. We need something to fill in this gap. But we also got to notice that Aaron appears to try and appease the people. He, he makes the calf. He builds the altar. And then he declares a feast to the Lord. He seems to be trying to facilitate dual worship. Did you see that? I'll make a calf. I'll, I'll give you instructions. I'll try to be your spiritual leader. But there's also the worship of Yahweh. Israel's problem here is that they are trying to live in both worlds. And Aaron is attempting to manage their misplaced desires. And this feast to the Lord. What a scene. Verse 6 tells us that the, the people burned offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. This has to be connected what, to what happened in Exodus chapter 24 at the covenant confirmation ceremony. They had seen this before, so they are trying to replicate it again. It seemed like they are trying to replicate the worship of Yahweh, but they were doing it their own way. But the outcome is as predictable as it is terrible. The later half of verse 6 has this statement that the people sat down to eat and drink and, what was it? The, to play. Okay. The Hebrew word here for play is a loaded word. Loaded. The NIV renders it, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The Hebrew word for play or revelry is used to describe sporting or flirtatious interactions. So when the Bible uses the word play, it is probably not talking about kickball and it's probably not talking about Red Rover. There is something about this activity that is pushing the envelope. In other words, their idolatry is leading to a self-centered celebration and very more than likely sensuality. Verses 7 through 10 kind of shift the scene to God's view of this whole thing. So there's kind of a story happening here. And then all of a sudden, verses 7 through 10, all of a sudden you get God's perspective of, what, of what's happening. He's up on high. He's having this conversation with Moses. All of a sudden God says, pause. I don't believe what's going on down here. He, Moses cannot see anything that's happening, so God informs him. God's judgment is that the people have corrupted themselves and turned from their covenant with God, and they are just spiritually stubborn people. So stubborn that God intends to just kill them all off and just says, listen, it is time to start from scratch, and Moses, you are the man. 
kind of sounds like another time, right? If you think about the other ark, where God says, I've had it. These people, I'm done with them. Evil has taken over our world, and I will start all over again. Noah, you're the man. But there's another shift that takes place. Verses 11 through 14 represent one of the greatest examples of a servant kind of leader. Moses appeals to God as a mediator of the people, reminding God of his covenantal promises. Take note, God doesn't forget. <laughs> but this is the kind of prayer that is going on. One who's mediating. God, let me remind you of who you are, of your desires. And, and remember what would be the stern effects of your judgment. How would the nations view you, God? God goes, I know. I know. But my heart towards sin burns. So much so that I want to just devastate the world. I hate sin. God is understandably and justifiably angry. And Moses is able to appeal for mercy. But once God's wrath is kind of quenched, Moses begins his journey down the mountain, and according to verses 15 through 18, Moses was carrying the tablets, the two Ten Commandments, Charleston Heston kind of moment, you know, coming down from the mountain with these two stone tablets, and there he met Joshua on his descent down, and he heard the noise, and he wasn't sure, Joshua wasn't sure, it sounded like kind of a, a battle cry, but it wasn't crying in defeat, and it wasn't this kind of joyful glee because of a win. These are songs that they're, they're singing. It's kind of a revival taking place. What is going on? But when they got down a little bit further at the sight of the calf and the dancing, Moses got it. He understood God's wrath in that moment. And he was filled with this kind of righteous anger. And what did he do? He threw down the, the tablets that God inscribed with his own finger. He wrote on both sides. And what did Moses do? Destroyed them. And the breaking of these tablets was a figurative picture of what the people had done in their rebellion. They broke God's covenant. And then Moses goes into overdrive, right? Could you imagine? One, the shock of the people. There's Moses. Oh, man. We just thought him dead. And Moses destroyed the calf by burning it, pulverizing it, and spreading it on the water, and making the people drinking it. it. It was a statement about the finality of this idol's destruction. It is done. I've destroyed it. And it was also a picture of their, as they were drinking it, internalizing the guilt of the moment. Moses' confrontation with Aaron is just another one of those sad kind of commentaries, right? Moses asked Aaron directly what the people did to him that he allowed them to, to have such a departure from God. 
Aaron's response immediately is to do what? He shifts blame. Kind of sounds like Adam in the garden, right? <laughs> this woman that you gave me, it's her fault. And immediately, that's what Aaron does. He shifts the blame. The people's stubbornness. And there, there was just uncontrollable circumstances, Moses. You have no clue the heat of ministry right now. And Aaron even, he had to be a loon at this moment. And Aaron, Moses had to just shake his head because Aaron suggests that the calf even miraculously kind of came up out of the fire. Kind of bloop. Right there. And verse 25 just provides a, a summary and a commentary. Now Moses saw the people were out of control. For Aaron, Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among the enemies. So the idolatry of the people resulted in them being out of control. And Aaron had let it happen. So here's the, the lunacy of idolatry, and it is punished with severity. The Levites are called, and they are given instructions to administer justice on the people. About 3,000 people, presumably the leaders who were leading and par participating in this insurrection, were killed immediately. We need to thank God that he does not act in this same way, right? Because immediately I would have an empty church. In fact, there would be nobody in the pulpit. Everyone would be killed because of our insurrection towards God. Thank God that God's wrath had come totally down on Jesus Christ and consumed Christ so that no longer we, do we have to deal with God's wrath. Thank God. So the final element of this story is just this atonement that Moses seeks on behalf of the people. The danger of the moment is over, and, and Moses informs the people that he needs to meet with the Lord. I need to meet with the Lord to, to offer atonement on your behalf. Moses gets it. A price has got to be paid. And it's remarkable. It's remarkable that Moses seeks forgiveness. How does he do it? By offering his life. Offering his life for the sake of the people. He says, listen, God, they have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And God, you know this. But now if you will forgive their sins. If not, blot me. Blot me out of the book of life. Does it sound like anybody else? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. But God will not take Moses' life for the sins of the people. As commendable and as righteous as, as he thought it might be, instead God will deliver an appropriate judgment on these people. And verse 20, uh, 35 tells us what God did. He, he brought down a... Uh, a plague on the people because of the sins that they committed and the sins that were facilitated by Aaron. Aaron is not getting off the hook very easily here. 
So the nation received discipline from the Lord for their idolatry. And the lure, the lure of security and the fulfillment in a God of their own making led them to lunacy. They were crazy. It only took 40 days. And the people went from the awe of God, the fear of the Lord, to outright rebellion. And this story should make us tremble to see how far and how fast human beings fall. And if we're honest with ourselves, how fast and how far you fall, I fall, every day, moment by moment. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10 as he reflects on Old Testament stories like this. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up and play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's from another story, not this story, just so you know. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble, <laughs> nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. That's a warning for you and for me. If you think you are able to stand today and say, I am invincible. I am temptation-free. I am idol-free. Let anyone who thinks he, he stands take heed lest he falls. There's a lure and a lunacy to idolatry, right? So, but why idols? You might read the story and think, what, what's the big deal about these idols? And a golden calf, what in the world? Part of the danger would be to, to not understand what really is going on and what the, the real appeal is. A few months ago, I read uh, a blog post by Kevin DeYoung where he uh, summarized nine, or he, he laid out nine points about kind of the lure and the lunacy, the attractions of idolatry by a gentleman by the name of Doug Stewart. So instead of giving you a, a nine-point sermon, I'm going to give you a four-point, boil-it-down kind of sermon and to help you make the connection between the Old Testament and our lives so that we can better understand idolatry. First, first thing is that there is something about self-interest. Idols were never created without a self-centered concern. Idols were worshipped because of what they brought to a worshiper. They, they, there was kind of a, a spiritual quid pro quo. How's that kind of lawyer term? I'm going to give you this, and in return you're going to give me that. Quid pro quo. I, I, so if whatever I offer here, I know I'm going to get something back. So the more that I give, 
the more I'm going to return. So there's a kind of a self-centered world. And in the ancient worldview, an idol served as a portal to another world. Therefore, the worship of an idol was only a means to an end. And that idol connected them, connected me to another world. But the basis of the relationship between the spirit world and the human world was the fact that the gods could do many, many things, but they could not feed themselves. These gods had power over fertility. They, they had power over the abundance of crops. But human beings had the power to feed the gods. Therefore, the, the human and divine interaction was based upon mutual self-interest. If humans would feed the god, then the god was obligated to bless them or him or her in return. To them, this was, a, was the way the universe kind of worked. And if you wanted any kind of blessing, any kind of abundance, then you had better feed the gods. Idolatry was essentially about self-centered greed. By the way, Paul even echoes this statement in Colossians 3 verse 5 when he said this, put off covetousness, which is, anybody know? Idolatry. So Paul is addressing, listen, it's not just what happened with Moses and the children of Israel at the base, base camp of Mount Sinai. Put off coveting things because ultimately what it is, it is a self-centered drive which is ultimately idolatry. Underneath idolatry is a passion for self. But there's also a second thing that we see here that we can understand. It, idolatry is convenient. Serving idols was a popular way to live because of the frequency and the generosity of sacrifices was the sum total of your religious life. In other words, there were no ethical boundaries whatsoever for worship. You worshiped idols because of what you received and not because of anything, any requirements beyond yourself. And what's more, there were places to offer sacrifices everywhere. Everywhere. The Bible talks about idols on every hill and under every spreading tree. So there were plenty of opportunities to live this way. The same is true for us today, too. You know, I, worship does not just happen here. Worship happens on the baseball field. It happens in your workplace. It happens around a, a family dinner. And there happens to be a lot of convenience right here. And that's the thing about idolatry. Is it is very convenient. It can happen anywhere in a multitude of different kinds of ways. But another thing that we see about idolatry is there's a, it's something normal about it, a normalization of it. 
Idol worship was, was the established way and the settled way to live in the ancient Near East. That's the way we do it. It was so embedded in their culture that to think that it would have been really countercultural to think that there was just one way. Monotheistic, there is one God, and you worship just him? And so if you were an Israelite and you asked a, a Canaanite, so tell me, how do we farm here? The Canaanite would have said, okay, well, you probably need some kind of hoeing thing, and you need to, it'd be really helpful for you to have some ox and some really good seeds from the last year that produced some really good things. But let me, else, let me tell you also, that's one part of it. You also need to, if you want productivity, you need to sacrifice to Asherah and Baal and Molech. You need to, for the sake of your productivity here, this is part of our what we do. So worshiping the fertility gods was just a part of the way of life, and idolatry was a normal part of their world. Monotheism, worshiping one God, would have been just a really strange view to them. So the people of the ancient Near East believed that there were multiple, multiple gods for multiple purposes. And throughout Israel's entire history, the problem was not that Israel denied Yahweh's existence. They didn't. There was still temple worship. They still had priests. They still had their feasts. And they participated fully in them. The problem was the additional gods. It was the day-to-day -day allegiance to these practical gods that got in Israel's way. Idolatry usually looked like Israel was trying to create a theological potluck with a little taste of every culture. They really never abandoned Yahweh. They just added things to the mix that were normal for their culture and were practically just reassuring. But there's the fourth piece that you need to know about idolatry, is that it was pleasurable. Pleasurable. It's not surprising, but it is probably one of the most concerning. The, the enemy made the worship of these gods fun, enjoyable, and even deeply sensual. Very sensual. The result is that the people got hooked. Idolatry was pleasing in three ways. First, first idolatry was just tangible. Part of the pleasure was the fact that worship was sensory. God wasn't mysterious or hidden. He was, their God was tangible. He was physical and attractive to behold. Look at that golden calf. Do you see how, how the sun just hits it and it's beautiful and it just shines? It is physical and tangible. But second, the people, you, you got to know that they were, it was pleasing because the people did not eat meat unless it was offered to an idol. So the more that you ate, the more that you sacrificed. 
You brought your evening meal to, to the altar. You placed it on there. It flipped it over, got it to a medium rare. Please, it pleased the God. And you, you ate more. And you, the more that you ate, the more blessings you received. Therefore, to pig out would simply increase the offering to the God. The more that I give, the more I'm going to receive. The more that I give, the more I'm going to receive. Gluttony and drunkenness were seen as being generous to the gods since they received a portion of everything they ate and drank. But there's also a sexual component. It was believed that that the fertility on earth depended on fertility among the gods. And it was believed that there was a connection between what was done on earth and what would happen in the world of the gods. Therefore, immorality was a frequent part of idol worship because it was believed that the more activity on earth with whomever you could have it, that's why there was often temple prostitutes, cult prostitutes, the more that you had sexual immorality here, the more activity you had here, the more activity actually happened in the realms of the gods. So during dark times of Israel's history, this kind of practice was intermingled even with temple worship. And it had to be addressed. You see that in 2 Kings chapter 23. And even Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, with dealing with an issue in, in a secular setting where he was dealing where believers were visiting the temple of Diana. And they thought it had no impact on their soul. They were still offering things. And Diana was a fertility goddess the multi-breasted one. So now you can probably imagine why it was so difficult for Israel to tear down these high places, these Asherah poles, and why God so often described their departure from him as spiritual idolatry or spiritual adultery. So the enemy wove into idolatry a deadly cocktail of self-concern, of convenience, of peer pressure, and pure pleasure. A deadly cocktail. And all that needed to happen was for the people of God to still claim to believe in Yah. I still believe in Him. And simply add additional practical gods into their lives. Idolatry was never about a golden calf. What happened at the Mount, base of Mount Sinai was not really just about that calf. It was really about what the people wanted. That they thought that the idol could give them. It could give them... It could give them security. It could give them identity. It could give them normalcy. It might give them power. It might give them pleasure. Man, this is all that we want. So the lure 
the lure of idolatry is that these things can seem so right and so needed. But the lunacy is that they are never really found in any other place other than God. Idolatry is a dead trap that leads to despair. So what does this mean? What, what do we do with this story? Where is the gospel found in all of this? And I would suggest that we have, we have to listen to its message very carefully, very carefully, because I am sure that when I was describing the problem of the lure and the lunacy of idolatry, you recognize probably a pattern or the, uh, the attraction even in your own life. If you were really listening, you're going, I get it. I, this message was crafted for me. Get out of my head, Paul. I understand the lure and the, the desire for power, control, normacy, normalcy. I, 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 I get that. And I'm willing to worship at that, whatever that altar is, as long as it provides me some kind of normalcy, some kind of power, some kind of control, some kind of fertility. I'm willing to worship at, uh, I still love Jesus. Don't get me wrong, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes here at this altar to receive these things. I get it. So let me give you a few things to think about as it relates to this issue. First of all, an idol can simply be anything. Anything. An idol can simply be something that serves as an alternate or an alternative to God in your life. Tim Keller says, it is anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imaginations more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. There are no limits as to what can become an idol. And I have three beautiful ones in my own home. One by marriage by childbirth. Let's name it. Idolatry. Very easily. What's, what's in your wallet can easily become, man, if I just had a little bit more cash, it would provide me just what I need so I feel safe and secure and, and at home. If I just had these kind of creature comforts, I could have this or this. If I could have this person or this kind of relationship or this child or this thing, I could, I could survive. It can be anything in your world. But the second thing is that we need to know that bad things, but especially good things, can become idols. The problem with idolatry is that we take something that God intended to be a blessing to you and we twist it. We make the blessings then about us. We use it for our identity or our happiness. And we fall into despair or hopelessness 
if there is any possibility of losing that thing. In my pastoral ministry, as a youth pastor, as a pastor, and even as a, as a teacher, I have seen this. I have seen how drugs or alcohol have become idols. I, I have seen power and money and possessions become idols. I have seen sex, marriage, affirmation, recreation, and even ministry become idols. The enemy loves to use the good gifts that God gives as a platform for godless self-worship. Is it resonating for any of you yet? I'm going to take by the silence as a yes. The third thing, you, you, you know you have an issue when the idol becomes ultimate. A counterfeit God is anything that is so important to your life that should you have to part with it, by your choice or not, it feels like life is not worth living anymore. So by definition, an idol is simply anything that is more fundamental to your happiness, your identity, and your being than God. Fourthly, idols offer us promises that are fundamentally false. The lure of the idol script is this. You'll be happier with me. You'll be happier with me. You need me. You can't live without me. And you deserve me. That's the idol script. You'll be happier with me. I promise you. You need me. I promise you. And you know what? You deserve me. And ultimately, these promises can even turn very... Very, very dark. The script sounds like this. Life isn't worth it without me. You're better dead without me. But that is a lie. And fifth, the solution to our relentless heart-based idolatry is a heart transformation that comes from a relationship with your creator God through Jesus Christ. That is the solution to your heart-based relentless pursuit of idolatry. It is only through the forgiveness and the internal uh, the internal restoration that is offered through Jesus Christ that our hearts can truly be satisfied. Jesus said, we, we started off this way and we're going to end this way. Listen, Jesus said to, said to us, come to me, 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Come to me. And it should just echo off the pages. We should hear the writers say, oh, Matthew say, Jesus said it. Come to me, all of you. Rest from what? Rest from trying to get your identity, your fulfillment, your hope from anything other than Jesus Christ. Idolatry is trying to wring out from people power, money, sex, affirmation, uh, position, children, marriage, or ministry. What really was only meant to come from the good news that is found in Jesus Christ. So my question today is not if you have idols. Because that is assumed of every person here. My question is, what are you doing about the idols that you and I both know are already in your life? What are you going to do? What are you going to do about those questions about, what was I thinking? Why is this bothering me so much? Why do I always respond this way? And why does this control me so much? Brothers and sisters, Keenly aware of the lure and the lunacy of idols. And remember, there is hope and power and forgiveness found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.